0: So I was, I was talking to somebody last week, just after one of the services, and he had been really unwell um, during one of the um, lockdowns, uh, not actually with COVID, but with something else pretty serious, and he, he was just telling me about a, a chat he'd had with a medical professional who had said to him, one of the things that we've been experiencing during um, the, the two years of lockdowns and everything else was what he called stealth stress, and, and what he meant by that is this idea of, of stress kind of creeping up on us, just all, almost in the background. Um, and, you know, there, there was, obviously, we all lived through it, but so much changed that we were constantly having to process. There, were, uh, there was a death count on the, on the news every single day. We didn't know when it was going to end. We had times where we thought it was going to end and we thought it was over and it turned out it wasn't over. And, um, you know, our, the things that, that replenished us got reduced to, you're allowed to go for a short walk once a day. Do you remember that? And that was like, that was the highlight of your day. You're allowed out to wave at somebody through a window. And, and that that was our life for, for a long time. And then on top of that, all the other stuff of life that happened throughout a two and a half year process. And um, the reason I mention that is because, I know that not all of us are, are in this place, but my observation is of myself and also of, of a number of people that I've chatted with, uh, lots of us are just just weary. Um, and largely because of everything we've, we've had to cope with for the last little while, we're tired. Maybe not physically, um, but emotionally. And, and some of the signs of that uh, are, you know, certainly the ones I see in my life are, I think I'm doing fine. And then something happens, and it sort of triggers this disproportionate overreaction in me. And I think afterwards, gosh, where did that come from? And, and I, I've been realizing, oh, I am actually quite, a, you know, emotionally, there's not loads in the tank. And um, one of the things that I've just been reflecting on as part of that is, you know, my response to it is often to beat myself up and say, you need to try harder you need to dig deeper, you need to pursue God more, you need to do all of that. And I I have found through trial and error that that does not generally work as a strategy. I don't know if you've experienced it and it's gone well, but for me it doesn't. Um, And and really what I want to speak out uh, on this morning is a follow-on from what I chatted about last week, which is really if there is a solution to that problem, as is for every problem. It isn't beating ourselves up and telling ourselves to try harder. Honestly, the solution is is knowing him better, is knowing Jesus as he is. And and so often, um, you know, I can think the solution is focus on my fears or on my doubts or, or on my circumstances. And of course, we want to reflect on those. They're not irrelevant. But but we also, there's, there's absolutely a time and a place for us to focus on him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And, and much of focusing on him is not learning something we didn't already know about him. For a lot of us, if we've been following him for a while, we do know him and we know these things. But so often... So to, to me, it's so often it's just reminding myself of what I already know about him, who I already know him to be. So that's what I want to try and do this morning. So if you've um, been around church for a little while, none of this will be new to you um, about him, but uh, I want us just to look at him again. And the best place to go, you can go anywhere in the Bible for this, but really my favorite place at least is always to go to the Gospels, the four Gospels. And um, one of the ways that I kind of picture the gospel writers are, are like they're film directors. And they're all directing effectively the same plot. It's about Jesus, the same Jesus in all four gospels, doing the same things. Um, and he goes, the, you know, he goes through the cross, he's resurrected. It's essentially the same storyline, but with four different directors. And so they each have their own take On who Jesus is, and they each have the things, certain things that they want to draw out about who Jesus is. So imagine uh, with me, if you will, that we are all sitting together on a giant sofa, and we pick up, one of us picks up the TV remote, and what we're going to do is we're going to channel hop. We're just going to just hop from Matthew to Mark to Luke to John, just to get a little glimpse of how they introduce Jesus, because even in the way they set it all up, they're saying so much about him. So we flick on the TV, And what we're watching is Jesus as directed by Matthew. How does Matthew start his introduction to Jesus? I don't know if you've ever read it, but it is quite possibly one of the most boring introductions to anything you've ever come across in your life, right? So he starts with this, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. And it goes on and on. I won't read the whole thing to you because you will will probably die by the time I get to the end of it. It's a long list of names, right? This is a little like you go to the cinema to watch the latest Marvel film and it starts with the credits. It doesn't start with an opening action sequence. It's like, here's all the people that were involved in this. It's the credits. And, And you think, well, what... Why start with something as dull as that? And partly it's dull for us because we're not around at the time when Matthew was writing, so we don't understand necessarily the context. But the context was the people of Israel were, were occupied by Rome and they were under Roman rule, and they were longing, the Jews, for God to send a ruler that He had promised to them called the Messiah. And they were waiting with expectation for this to happen, and they knew from the Old Testament that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of King David. And so the reason Matthew starts with this long family history is partly to make the point that you remember King David? Well, the one I'm about to tell you about is his great, 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 great grandson. So that's how it starts to set it up. The king is coming. And then the scene switches and it's Joseph. It's not really about Mary in this this movie. It's all about Joseph. Joseph is called the son of David, even though his actual dad's name was Jacob, because it's making the point it's about, he's, he's from the line of King David. Then the scene switches again, and it goes to Bethlehem, and you think, why Bethlehem? There's nothing special about Bethlehem. In those days, Bethlehem was the ancient equivalent of Hemel Hempstead. Can anything good come from there? And you think, no, we should have gone for something powerful city. I don't know, like Watford. Um, as if, right? um, But like London, you know, the equivalent of Jerusalem in those days. Why Bethlehem? Well, the the reason for that is if you track back to the Old Testament, Bethlehem is where David was from. That was his town. Bethlehem is where David was anointed king. And then the scene switches again, and it's the wise men. You you know, it's not the shepherds in Matthew. It's all about the wise men. And the wise men come looking, and they go to the palace of King Herod, who was like just the most unstable, psychopathic king you can imagine, right? And they go to the king, and they say, hello, we're the wise men. We've, um, we've come looking for the new king of Israel. Do you know where he's going to be born? And you just think at that point, how wise were the wise men to do something as funny as that? But they did it, and, and they directed, in the end, they find their way to Bethlehem, and they come up to this this, um, this baby, and, you know, we see all the time the way that people approach newborn babies. It's very sweet. We all do it. We go up to them and we go, oh, it's a baby? Oh, could you, could you cool? Could you, could you cool, right? Can I have a cuddle with a baby? Right? And we talk like that with, with babies, don't we? Well, these guys, they go up to a baby and they bow. They fall on their faces and they, they give him gifts. And the reason for that is because they see what Matthew's trying to help us to see, which is this isn't just a baby, this is a king. A king has come. A king has been born. So it's like, you know, reading the opening of this movie is like going into you know, a nursery that someone's just prepared for their child, and the dad's a Man United fan, right? And it's got Man United wallpaper, and it's got, like, Ronaldo teddy bear in there. And it's got a little baby, Man United baby grow, and it's got a shrine to Alex Ferguson and the glory days in the corner, you know? And you walk into that, you see the baby surrounded by that, and what are you are going to think? You think, I think this baby might support Man United when it gets older. It's like, there's Joseph and there's the family history and there's Bethlehem and there's the wise men and what we walk into the nursery of Jesus and what it tells us is that He really is the King, and we are living at a time where it's, it's it's like the world is at war, the world is on fire, and we can question God's sovereignty and His control. And yes, of course, we want Him to move and we pray for that and we obey Him to that end. But at the same time, let us never lose sight of the fact that Jesus. Is in charge. Jesus is in control. One of the stories that always speaks to me about this is um, I mentioned Brother Andrew last week in his book, God Smuggler. He, um, he had all these adventures with God. And one of the ones that, that he just mentions in passing is a time when he had a contact in a city that was where Christians were persecuted and they, they were underground, as it were. And so he went to the city and he, all he had was an address for this person. Um, But he couldn't find a map anywhere. Apart from, he managed to find one. And he was trying to be covert, so he didn't want to go asking around. But he found a map under the glass in the lobby of the hotel he was staying in. And it had all the streets of the city drawn, but only the main streets labeled. And he was looking for a tiny little street. It just so happened that the one tiny little street on this map that was labeled was the street where the contact he had lived. So he went along to this street. And he said, he's walking down the street, and he sees a guy walking towards him. He's got no idea what this Christian contact looks like. But he said, in that moment, we recognize each other in our spirits. And so without speaking, the guy went to his, like, tower block, opened the door. Brother Andrew followed him in. They went up to the flat. He opened his door. He opened, you know, they, they both walk in. He shuts the door. And at that point, they go, how you doing? And I remember thinking, reading, thinking, wow, that's cool. And then just carrying on reading, you know, thought nothing else of it. And then I stopped like a little while later and I thought, hang on a second, for God to orchestrate that particular miracle, which is, is lovely, but like, it's a, you know, it's fairly small, for God to orchestrate that, humanly speaking, what would have had to have happened? And I thought about the fact that, you know, the guy who's drawing his map, who's not going to label any of the little streets, just decides at random to label this one particular street. And then the guy who's who's doing his hotel lobby just decides to pick that one particular map that happens to have that one particular street drawn on it. And then of all the places that the Christian contact could have lived, he somehow ends up living on this particular street that happened to be marked on this particular map. And then um, of all the Christians who were underground in that city at that moment, Brother Andrew happens to get in touch with this particular guy who happens to live on that particular street. And as if that's not enough the Lord orchestrates it so that they both happen to walk down the street at exactly the same time. And what what I've been reminding myself of about him, because I've forgotten this, I think, is that the God that we follow, he never drops a catch. His timing is perfect. He is making all things new, and we pray that he he would move more, but we also have to remember that he is the king. So pick up the remote, change the channel. This is Jesus as directed by Mark. And if Mark was directing films today, I guarantee there would be action movies. And, uh, you know, when he starts his intro of Jesus, he's just, he gets straight to the point. So this is how Mark begins. Mark chapter one, verse one says, in the, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, boom. And we are off to the races. Jesus doesn't have time to be born in this gospel. There are no magi. There are no shepherds. He just arrives as a 30-year-old man. And from the get-go, what he's doing is he's serving people. And uh, you know what? That's one of the reasons why there doesn't need to be the family history. If you go to a restaurant and someone's there to take your order, you don't say, who is your great-great-great-great-great-granddad? You just say, I'd like a burger and fries, please. Well, in, in the same way, on one level, it's like he's here as the servant but he's, he's not just a servant who can help us carry our shopping to the car and give us a cup of tea, although that's very nice. He's a servant who just, who saves. He has this power to, to transform. And person after person, when they meet him, that's what they find. So just in this gospel alone, I mean, it's packed with stuff. But like Mark chapter one, this guy with leprosy comes up to Jesus. And he's, you know, he's crippled by this disease He's ostracized because of it. There is no known cure. His future has been written until he encounters Jesus. And then he's made clean in a moment. Mark chapter two, there's this this guy who's paralyzed and his world is his bed. He cannot get out of it and he never will be able to until his friends, they pick up his mat and they carry him and they lower him through the roof and he encounters Jesus just for a single moment and his whole future becomes one of leaping and bounding around. Then in Mark chapter 3, there's a guy in a synagogue that Jesus is in, and his hand is all shriveled. It's not broken, it's shriveled. Until Jesus speaks a word, and suddenly this thing that is shriveled becomes whole. And then Mark chapter 4, there's a storm going on, and they're all caught in Lake Galilee, and they think they're going to die, the disciples, until Jesus stands up, speaks a single word, and the whole storm calms down. That's mad. That's mad. And then Mark chapter five, they they, they land on the shore of the lake and this guy comes running towards them, who's full of demons. He's been self-harming. He lives in, in, in a graveyard. He's a really far gone guy. No one's got any hope for him. No one can help him until he meets Jesus. And suddenly he's restored to his right mind. In the same chapter, a woman who has a problem with bleeding, and she's had it for 12 years, she spent her money on doctors and no one can help her. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. She comes up to Jesus in a crowd. She doesn't talk to him. She doesn't touch his hand. She just touches the edge of his coat. And when she touches the edge of his coat, she is healed. While that's going on, there's a girl Jesus is on his way to see who's very ill, and she actually, she dies before he gets there. So he arrives... And it's not that she's really bad. It's not that she's at death's door. She's gone through death's door. She's dead. And all the people there are laughing at Jesus, and they're like, there's nothing you can do for her because she's died. It's a shame you didn't get here earlier. And Jesus, he just goes up to the room where this girl is dead, and he calls to her, just like I call my kids for breakfast. I say, come on down, it's breakfast. Come on, get up, honey. And and, and she gets up. And this is the kind of stuff that Jesus is doing all the time. I I remember... um, Years ago now, seeing this Adidas advertising campaign. And it was all, the adverts were all in black and white. And it had all these sort of like sports superstars. Lionel Messi, Usain Bolt, all the people that were big in those days. And uh, there's this, they would do like, Lionel Messi would score a goal from the wrong end of the pitch. And and Usain Bolt would run the 100 meters and smash it. and, And then it would come up, as they did this, it would then sort of like, everything would go black on the screen. And then these three white stripes would come up. And this little saying that said, Adidas, impossible is nothing. And I remember thinking, I must buy myself some of this Adidas, (laughs) you know, try it out. So I did, I bought the whole kit, I bought the trainers, I bought the socks, I was, you know, I was was wearing all of it. And what I found is, I still couldn't run like Usain Bolt, no matter, I still couldn't play football like Lionel Messi. My discovery was, having spent quite a lot of money with Adidas, impossible is still, in fact, impossible. But there is one for whom impossible truly is nothing. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he comes as the servant who saves. He comes to set us free. And so, my question for us would be what is your impossible? Is it anxiety? Is it depression? Is it the fact that you need a job? Is it a relationship that's just toxic? Is it you're worried about your child? What is your impossible? Because for him, impossible is nothing. Pick up the remote, change the channel. Jesus, as directed by Luke. And I love the way that Luke introduces to Jesus because in this gospel, it's like the curtains are drawn back. And the scene is the temple. And there's this old priest called Zechariah who's in his 80s and in the heart of the temple. And he's going about his duties. And the angel Gabriel appears to him. And Gabriel basically says to him, you're gonna have, you, know, you and your wife Elizabeth, I know you've never been able to have kids, but and you're in your 80s, but you're gonna have a baby. And it's gonna be John the Baptist. And uh, Zechariah's response to, to the angel Gabriel is absolutely classic. So he just says in verse 18 of chapter one, Zechariah asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Now, roughly translated, that's how can I be sure of this? Because I'm old, and have you seen my wife? <laughs> I mean, I'm old, but she is well along in years, right? She, you know. And Gabriel, uh, his response to Zechariah, he just says really bluntly, I am Gabriel. How can I be sure of this? Because I am the angel flipping Gabriel, you moron, right? And then Gabriel goes on to say, and because you've, you know, because you haven't believed, because that's such a, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's like because that's such a stupid thing to say, you're not allowed to speak anymore. You won't be allowed to speak until John the Baptist is born. I'm going to give your wife Elizabeth the best gift anyone ever has. All right, just shush for nine months. So Zachariah, he 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 has this visit from Gabriel, and he doesn't believe Gabriel. And then the scene changes in the gospel, and it goes to um, Mary. Gabriel goes to Mary, and of course she's the polar opposite, so she believes Gabriel, and she says, okay, may it be to me as you have said. But the one thing that we can sometimes forget about Mary is that she's a peasant girl, so she's about as low on the social ladder as it's possible to get. She doesn't have anything. And when Jesus is born, you know, when royalty is born, they get born in Knightsbridge and Chelsea, and they have Hello magazine, and they're given rattles made of gold and stuff. Like, Jesus, the king of kings is born. She can't even give him a room. Can you imagine not being able to give your own child a room at birth? She can't even give him a bed. His bed is this thing that animals eat from. She's got nothing to give him. And then the scene changes, and my favorite characters in all of the birth stories come up, the shepherds. And they're out there in the hills, just outside Bethlehem. One of the things that cracks me up about the shepherds is that the wise men have traveled thousands of miles, you know, to find baby Jesus, following the star. The shepherds have literally sat under the same star for I don't know how many weeks now, and they have no clue that anything is happening. Um, and again, they are low on the social ladder. They're night watch shepherds, which means they're so thick, they can only look after sheep if the sheep are asleep. That's, that's their job, right? And, and who does God send? They clearly don't know what's going on, but God's like, okay, I'm going to send Gabriel, and I'm going to send like a whole backup choir of angels, and there's going to be like a whole song and dance routine. So the angels come, they give them this whole concert, and it's only when they're there enjoying the concert uh, of the angels in the stars that they suddenly think, you know what, I think something's happening. I think something might be going on tonight. And at that point, they're like, let's go and have a look. Let's go and see this thing that all those angels have told us about. And so they turn up. They don't have a clue. And then God tells them. So who do you meet when you kind of introduced to Jesus in this film? Who you meet is Zachariah, who doesn't believe anything. Mary, who doesn't have anything. And the shepherds, who don't know anything. And I want to say, Lord, what are you doing Go into this bunch of Muppets. And then you realize after a while that what we're doing when we look at them is we're in fact looking in the mirror. Because isn't that true of us? How many of us doubt him? How many of us feel like, I have nothing to give you that that, that makes me somehow worthy of, of having you in my life? How many of us feel like, I don't have a clue what you're doing. I have no idea what's happening right now. But the point is this, He is the gift to us, just as he was to them. It never, ever mattered how worthy they were, how deserving they were. It was about the fact that he came to be our friend. So when we see Jesus through this movie, what we're seeing is we're seeing Jesus, the friend of sinners, the friend of the broken, The friend of the lost, the friend of the stressed, the friend of, I haven't done well this week. He's our friend. Pick up the remote, change the channel one last time. Jesus, as directed by John. And, you know, if what we see in Matthew is that Jesus is the king. And what we see in Mark is that Jesus is the servant who saves us. And what we see in Luke is Jesus is the friend of the lost, the friend of the broken. What do we see in John? John is showing us, I think, that Jesus is God. Now, he's God in all of the Gospels, and they all make that clear. He's the friend in all of them. You know, He's he's all of them in all of them. But if there's an emphasis in John, this is it. Jesus is God. And this is the one that, for me, frankly, I, I just don't know how to describe it. But uh, one of the things that I've been thinking of uh, a lot in the last week and a half is, have you guys seen the um, you know, the, the, the photos that have been sent back by that James Webb telescope that's been flying around up there? It's been on the news a little bit. Um, some of the photos, they're showing us things that we already knew were there, but in a clearer way. And they're also seeing further into space than we've ever been able to see before. I've actually got a couple of the photos. Can we have the first one up? Uh, this first one is the Carina Nebula, it's called. And it is... Uh, 7,600 light years away from where we're sitting right now. A light year is uh, 6 trillion miles. I googled that this morning. So it's a long way away. And it's very, very big. The the clouds of gas and dust that you can see that are the orange bits, they're like themselves about seven light years across. This is, we're seeing with with sort of distinctive clarity, more than we've ever seen before, like a birthplace for stars. Stars are born in this part of the, the universe. And then the next photo... This is a cluster of galaxies, and it's 290 million light years from from where we are. And in each of these galaxies that you see in the foreground, there are millions of stars, hundreds of millions of stars. And then you see in the background, when I first saw that photo, I thought the stuff in the background, the sparkly bits in the background were stars, but the sparkly bits in the background are in fact galaxies. Galaxies. Each one of those points of light in the background is itself a galaxy of 200 million, 300 million stars just in there. And then you look at the next picture. This is my favorite one. Um, this, is, this is further into space. So this is uh, as, as clear as we've ever seen into deep space before this photograph. And it's a photo of, a, again, a cluster of galaxies. There's thousands of galaxies in that picture. And some of these galaxies are as far away in space as 13.6 billion light years away. Each one of those galaxies on that picture contains hundreds of millions of stars. And so you think, okay, God wants to show me he loves me. For him, the sky is not even the limit, right? He could do anything he wants to communicate that to us. And I was thinking, with the stars, he could have been even more creative. He could have made the Carina Nebula, you know, look like a heart or something, or he could have made the stars sing to us, or he could have written just a suggestion, I love you, Andy. With the stars, he could have done any of those things, and instead, this is what he does. Next picture. I don't know if you've ever seen a baby breathe, but they breathe a little quicker than the rest of us do. And I just imagine Mary sitting there in that stable watching... A little boy breathing, his breath going in and out, in and out, in and out, just like any other mother at any other point in history, apart from there is one difference, because the breath of that little boy breathed the stars into existence. By the breath of his mouth, he created the heavens, we're told. If you ever had a little baby wrap its chubby little hand around your finger, the whole hand takes up just one of your fingers Mary would have had that. And same as any other baby, apart from, we're told in the scripture, that he measures the universe by the span of his hand. And so somehow, in some wonder and mystery, that same hand measures the whole universe. There is, to quote C.S. Lewis, something born in that stable that is bigger than the whole world. And if John were directing a film today, I bet you it would be Star Wars. And if you've ever seen the intro to Star Wars, you'll know it starts with the stars, right? And then there's this little, right this sort of yellow writing that comes out. And it, and it says, in a, in a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And I imagine John in his old age trying to work out, how do I start my gospel? How do I introduce everybody to Jesus? And so it's like, he, as if he dips his quid in the ink. He thinks for a moment, and then he says, aha, I've got it, in the beginning. And you see, what Mark does is he starts with Jesus as a 30-year-old man, and Matthew goes a little bit earlier and starts with the birth of Jesus. And Luke goes a little bit earlier than Matthew and starts with the birth of John the Baptist. And then John just goes a little bit earlier than Luke and starts at the beginning of all time and in those words in the beginning what he's doing is he's echoing the way the bible starts which is with the words in the beginning in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth but john tells us in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was with god in the beginning through him all things were made without him nothing was made that has been made In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. What he's saying is that the God of love loves us so much that he came close. He decided not to love us from a distance but to love us by coming near and by becoming one of us. So who is this Jesus we follow? Have we forgotten do we need to be reminded again? I know I do. He is the king of kings. He reigns supreme. He is the servant for whom impossible is nothing. He is the friend. This does not depend on our goodness. It's 100% dependent on his. And his goodness never changes. And he is God Almighty among us. The word made flesh. Pick up the remote, switch off the TV. That, by the way, is just the introduction to Jesus. The opening chapters, the full films are incredible. There's this amazing twist at the end. You think it's all gone wrong and it turns out it hasn't. But I'll let you read that for yourself. This is who he is. Amen. Amen.